Welcome to What Christians Should Know, hosted by Dr. Elijah Sadoffel. This podcast equips you with clarity and meaningful answers about God, the Bible, and your Christian life. Now, here's Dr. Sadoffel. As we continue the series, The Bible Made Ridiculously Simple, we now come to the book of Romans, which is the first of a new type of Bible book. So far, we have learned about many different other types. We have talked about the Book of Five or the Pentateuch. We have talked about history books like First and Second Kings, poetry books like Psalms, and gospel books like Luke. Now, we come to a type of book called an epistle. Epistle is a special word that refers to a letter, not just any old letter, but a letter that an apostle wrote to a person or to the people in a church in a particular city. So, for example, the book of Titus is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to Titus. The book of Romans is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to those people who belonged to the church in Rome in the first century. Generally speaking, the epistles tend to be personal and intimate because the apostles who wrote the letters actually knew the people they were writing to. This is why in many of the letters, specific individuals are mentioned by name. So the book of Romans is a letter to the church in Rome. Why was Rome so special? Because in Paul's day, Rome was the center of the known world. Thus, it is fitting that the epistle had a global perspective. In fact, the original audience of the letter were Gentiles or non-Jews. Therefore, Romans basically lays out the gospel or the good news of Jesus to a world that was unfamiliar with him. If we take a step back, all the books in the Bible so far, from Genesis through Acts, tell us that God made the world and humanity, humanity fell, and the entire drama of redemption before Christ pointed to him. Then, Jesus lives, dies, resurrects, ascends to heaven, and subsequently sends his apostles into the world to grow his church. If you were not a Jew, or if you were not living in Palestine when Jesus was alive, all of this information would be foreign to you. So what does Paul do in Romans? He explains what God was doing from the very beginning and tells a global listening audience who Jesus is, what he did, why he did it, and how all of that is relevant to everybody everywhere. As you can tell, the scope of Romans is massive because it clarifies what God was doing all throughout the Bible. So if we were to boil this all down, what is the big idea of the book of Romans? In general, the big theme in Romans is the basic gospel. In other words, God's plan of salvation for all of humankind, Jew and Gentile alike. This big theme touches upon many other important doctrines like sin, salvation, grace, faith, sanctification, redemption, death, and resurrection. It is therefore difficult to boil everything down into one big idea. In fact, Romans is very systematic, and once you start reading it, it doesn't read like a letter at all. It reads like a systematic theology textbook, and this is fitting since Romans is the Bible's first explicit doctrinal book. I must even admit that attempting to explain and simplify Romans is intimidating given the weight of the task at hand. Looking back, I had to read some chapters dozens of times before I obtained a superficial understanding of what Paul was writing. The reason why What Christians Should Know Volume 5 is called The Bible Made Ridiculously Simple is because there are many things in the Bible that are hard to understand. Romans is a perfect example of such things. 
Truly, the Holy Spirit is the ultimate teacher, but I will do my best to make things clear. So with all of that being said, what I will say is that the big idea of the book of Romans is justification by faith alone. The big idea of the book of Romans is justification by faith alone. As Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So when I say justification, what do I mean? Justification means being declared righteous. God is the one who declares a sinner righteous. Being declared righteous is a big deal because the only way a person can be right with God is if God says, you're okay. Without justification, a person is at war with God. With justification, a person has peace with God. When God declares a person righteous, this means the relationship between the person and God has been repaired. What damages the relationship is sin. You can't make it to heaven, nor can you delight in God's presence in eternity, unless the sin that severed the relationship between you and God is dealt with. Who is the only one who mediates for us and repairs the broken relationship? Jesus. So, we are never declared righteous by our own merit. Rather, we are declared righteous by our faith in Jesus Christ. For all those in Christ, we are regarded as being one with Him by our faith. So when God sees us, He does not see our sins. Rather, He sees Christ paying the debt of sin by His atonement on the cross, and He sees Christ's life of perfection. Jesus thus takes away the penalty for all of our sin and imputes all of His perfect righteousness to us. Therefore, because of Jesus, the relationship is reconciled and we are now justified or declared righteous. All believers have faith in Christ as our Redeemer. We do not have faith in our works, nor do we have faith in anything else to save us. Thus, justification is by faith alone. I will illustrate an analogy to make all of this clear. The sequence of the events I describe will not be precise in how they actually happen in the life of a believer, but my intent is to merely paint the big picture. Imagine a courtroom where God is a judge. What Paul will tell us in the first three chapters of Romans is that all human beings come into God's courtroom guilty. Paul surveys the spiritual condition of humanity and finds that everyone is a sinner. Sinners commit sins, and sin is cosmic treason in God's courtroom. God isn't a pushover, and His justice demands that a penalty be paid for sin. That penalty is death. So how does anyone survive? Who will save us, and who will plead our case? Well, if a person defends themselves based upon who they are or what they have done, they don't stand a chance if they argue with a perfect and holy God. That's the bad news. The good news is that for those who have faith in Christ, Jesus now is our advocate. He is God, so God now pleads our case before God. Before we ever stepped into the courtroom, Jesus took upon his shoulders all the sin we would ever commit. As our substitute, he bore the penalty for our sins on the cross. Through his sacrifice, the justice of a holy God is satisfied. That justice demanded that someone had to die for sin. So now, when God looks at us, he does not see our sin and say guilty. 
Instead, in the courtroom, Jesus raises his pierced hand for us and says, Not guilty. Once we have the penalty paid for our sins, we're all at zero, meaning Jesus takes away all the negative that we owe to God because of sin. Unfortunately, zeros do not make it to heaven. Even more, although Jesus paid the penalty for our sins, we are still warped people. We are still depraved sinners with fallen desires. So what does God do? He regenerates us and transforms us into new people who don't long to do what is criminal. This regeneration is a divine act of God that enables us to have faith in Jesus in the first place. After our regeneration, we are progressively made more like Jesus and less like our former criminal selves. Still, legally speaking, we are still at zero and zeros do not make it to heaven. Here is where there is even more good news. Jesus lived a life doing what was right all the time, and he obtained perfect, godly righteousness. So for all those who have faith in Christ, Jesus now takes his pristine white robes of perfect righteousness and places them on us. So when God sees us now, we are not only not condemned, but he perceives a spiritual bank account overflowing with funds because of all the righteousness Christ did in his life. When God sees that, he then declares us righteous. He makes that declaration based upon what Christ did. Those who are justified are righteous, and righteous people are right with God. Justification is what saves the righteous from judgment. The righteous are the ones who make it to heaven to enjoy God forever. I hope I made that as clear as possible. A key take-home point from that analogy is that the only means by which someone is saved is God's means. In God's courtroom, no one is free to do what is right in their own eyes. Only God can save you from the just wrath of God. So the only means by which anyone is saved is by faith in Jesus Christ. Christ is the only one who atoned for sin, and Christ is the only one who lived a life of perfect righteousness. Everyone therefore desperately needs Jesus, whether they know it or not. Without justification, a person is at war with the Lord. With justification by faith in Christ, the war is over and there is peace. Salvation results not by what we can do, but by what God has already done. And when the events in the courtroom are over one day, the person does not go home and then live as they used to. As I mentioned, they are a completely transformed and renewed person who recognizes what God has done for them. They understand that God died so that they can live. They understand that grace is free, but it is not cheap. The result is that they live a life that reflects their love of their Savior, and this has radical, real, palpable effects in the way they think and act. This plays out as an abhorrence to sin, an obedience to God's word, and a desire to do that which is right. It also has radical, real, palpable effects on an interpersonal level, in the church, and in society, and the world at large. That now gives you a bird's eye view of the book of Romans. What I will do next is go through some highlights from individual chapters in order to extract some important lessons. 
Generally speaking, Paul draws a figurative line in between chapters 11 and 12, meaning chapters 1 to 11 is where he lays out the doctrine. He gives us a careful exposition of critical theological doctrines, and then he begins chapter 12 with a big therefore, meaning from chapter 12 onward, Paul essentially says, Therefore, now that I just explained all of that about God, this is what all that means in your everyday life. I'll start in Romans chapter 1. In Romans 1 verses 16 to 17, Paul sets the tone for the rest of the epistle. He writes, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, But the righteous man shall live by faith. Now why would Paul write, I am not ashamed of the gospel? If the gospel carries with it the power of God for salvation, then why would Paul have to qualify it by saying, I don't feel embarrassed about what I'm going to tell you? The reason why is because even though the good news of Jesus Christ is the best news you will ever hear, many people treat the good news as rubbish. For thousands of years, the world has regarded the gospel as foolishness, and we live in a day and age when someone who believes the truth of God's word is labeled in derogatory ways and mocked. What Paul is therefore saying in this opening dramatic statement is that although many are ashamed of the gospel, he is not because it describes God's rescue plan for humanity. In Romans 1.17, Paul quotes one of the most important verses in the Old Testament. He quotes Habakkuk 2.4 when he writes, But the righteous man shall live by faith. The righteous person has an informed, intelligent comprehension about what God has done through his son Jesus. They then trust in and believe in God, his promises, and his redemption plan. The righteous person lives not by his or her own prescriptions, but in the prescriptions of the Lord. The righteous person lives because they believe in the one who gives eternal life. While the righteous person lives by faith, the unrighteous person dies by unbelief. It is no surprise, then, that unbelief is the very next thing Paul talks about. In order to explain justification, I drew an analogy to a courtroom. I said that in God's courtroom, everyone enters guilty. What did I mean by that? How can a person be guilty without even being tried? What Paul explains in Romans 1, 18-32 is that the awareness of God is universal. He explains that every person has a sense of God written on their conscience. Everyone has a deeply ingrained sense of right and wrong within themselves, so even if they never heard about Jesus, even if they never stepped into a church, even if they never opened a Bible, even if all of those things applied, they still have a God-given basic sense of right and wrong. Unbelief rejects God and therefore suppresses the pleadings of the conscience. Unbelief therefore involves the purposeful rejection of the Lord by actively suppressing the truth. This indictment is common to humanity and therefore no one is innocent. Romans 1.18-20 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. 
What Paul tells us here is that not only is everyone guilty, but no one is exempt because God has not only made himself evident in people's conscience, but he also has made himself evident in creation, such as living in a world hospitable to life, the specified complex design of life, and having a universe governed by fixed laws and patterns. God's revelation is therefore global, internal, and external. Hence, Romans 1, 18-32 tells us that there are no real atheists. There are only men who have suppressed their internal sense of God down so far and so deep that they do not acknowledge Him as Lord anymore. This awareness is always there, it's just covered in fig leaves. The cardinal sin of humanity is idolatry. Idolatry means we exchange the truth of God for an idol and worship the idol instead of God. We don't trust God, so we trust something else. In fact, because suppressing the truth of God within ourselves actually hurts us, idolatry is very attractive because it eases the pain and makes us feel better. Granted, idolatry does not mean that people are not religious. On the contrary, some of the most powerful forms of idolatry are deeply religious so that we can look at ourselves in the mirror and pretend that we are not falling apart. As you can tell, Romans chapter 1 is not very uplifting. It is catastrophically bad, bad news. The good news that Paul will get to truly is good news, but the good news isn't really good until you hear the bad news first. So all of humanity is guilty. Does that include Jews? Does that include people like Moses who had God's law and therefore knew what was right? Well, in chapter 2, Paul essentially says yes to all these questions. He says that everyone is condemned whether they have the law or not. In Romans 2.11, Paul writes, There is no partiality with God. Because God is impartial, His justice actually means something, and no matter who you are or who you are affiliated with, you are guilty. In fact, what Paul says in Romans 2 verses 1 to 3 is that people judge one another all the time, and this impersonal judging does not require a knowledge of the Bible. So when one person judges another, they do so because they actually believe in right and wrong. And if right and wrong are actually real, then people are deserving of judgment. Therefore, there are no innocent natives somewhere out there because no one is innocent. If people judge one another, that is imperfect and partial. If God judges humanity, it is perfect and impartial. And for the Jew who has the law or the Christian who has the Bible, they are more responsible to God's justice because they have received a greater revelation of it. This means greater awareness makes responsibility go up, not down. In the end, God's judgment also means something because when Jesus comes back, he will judge everyone. No one escapes final judgment, so while it may seem like people are getting away with it now, that's what things only seem. In reality, they are storing up wrath for themselves, and that wrath will one day be unleashed. So now that we have all the bad news, what is the good news? Paul begins to lead the way out in chapter 3. Before he tells us what God has done, he tells us what we cannot do. In Romans 3.20, Paul says, By the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. In other words, even though you are guilty, you cannot earn your salvation no matter how hard you try and how much you do. 
In the same way that Paul said, no one is innocent in chapter 2, no one can make it to heaven on good works because no one is good. Even if someone were good, that still isn't good enough because God is cosmically bigger than good. He is holy. Hence, since no person can reach God, God must reach us. And this is exactly what God did through Jesus. God found us where we were because left to our own devices, we would never find him because we wouldn't even bother to look. Romans 3, 21-26 says, But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. This was to demonstrate His righteousness, because in the forbearance of God He passed over sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of His righteousness at the present time, so that He would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. What Paul makes plain here is that neither guilty people nor good people can make themselves righteous. So, our righteousness is a gift by grace. When God declares us righteous, that righteousness is not ours, but is alien to us. We are justified by faith alone, so the way we secure that righteousness is simple, by having faith in the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Now I must say that probably the turning point in the book of Romans happens here in Romans 3 verses 24 to 26. When I say turning point, I'm referring to the precise location where Paul pivots from telling us all the bad news and proclaims the glorious good news. Again, Romans 3, 24 to 26 says, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Essentially, what this text communicates is that in spite of the fact that all are guilty and God is supremely just, God is also the one who justifies us. In other words, the one who has the right and the power to justly condemn everyone is precisely the one who acquits us. God is able to do this justly based on the atonement of Jesus on the cross. The just judge therefore remains just in acquitting sinners and declaring them righteous. This is the greatest news ever reported, and God, through His Son, transformed the most dreadful of all situations into the most glorious one where God's eternal glory reigns supreme in the redemption of the elect. What Paul will then say in chapter 4 is that being saved by faith is not a new idea in the New Testament. By using the example of Abraham, he makes it clear that even for the Old Testament saints, they were not saved by works, but they were saved by faith. If they did the works but did not believe God, those were dead works. 
It's the faith that animated the works that made them real, and all throughout the Bible, the message is clear. Religious externalities without the proper internal heart condition are self-deluding and toxic. In chapter 5 of Romans, Paul explains justification by faith as having peace with God. Without faith, we are at war with God. But with faith, God's mediator brokers peace. Peace with God means that we're not just neutral with God, but in a state of positive peace, which entails having a relationship and fellowship with the Lord. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Romans chapter 6 explains that a real-life benefit of this peace is our sanctification, meaning we do not merely sin more and more just so that grace may abound. Rather, as a necessary result of justification, step by step and day by day, we become more and more like Jesus. This means progressively more holy. Now, when I say progressively more holy, this does not mean that a person will become perfect in this life. That is a fairy tale. In chapter 7, Paul speaks in the present tense and characterizes sanctification as a war, a raging battle within as the old fleshly person dies and the new spiritual person grows. If a person did believe that they ever could become perfect in this life, then they must have missed Romans chapters 1 to 3. They must minimize God's holiness, and they must also maximize their own performance. Romans chapter 8 is one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. Why is that? Because here we find the golden chain of salvation. That term golden chain is not in the Bible, but is used to refer to the stages detailed in Romans chapter 8, verses 29 to 30. Those verses say, For those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. The golden chain of salvation is therefore foreknowledge, which leads to predestination, which leads to justification, which leads to calling, which leads to glorification. In plain English, what these verses tell us is that salvation is of the Lord, that God is the operative agent in charge of our salvation, and ultimately, whether we are saved depends on God, not on us. When Paul writes, those whom he predestined, that refers to those people whom God chose to go to a destination before they even began planning their trip. The purpose of predestination is the destination. That destination is Christ. Christ is the door that leads to eternal glory in heaven. God is sovereign, so he leaves nothing to chance. As a result, people who get saved don't catch God by surprise. As Romans 8, 29-30 tells us, God neither makes a blind choice to save. Rather, based on his foreknowledge, he has an awareness of a person and then decides to save them. Again, this is not based on what a person does or will do. This is based on God's sovereign choice. Practically speaking, then, no one chooses Jesus based on their own initiative, but God gifts us the desire to respond to Jesus in faith. All those who have the gift do in fact respond. The perilous uncertainty with a theology that says ultimately you are the one who chooses God must answer one simple question. What happens when you unchoose God? Where is your Christian confidence? 
because at any moment you may get off the highway to heaven and merge onto the highway to hell. In a dynamic where the person chooses God, God is not sovereign, and human choice is the most powerful force in the universe. In a dynamic where God is sovereign, God is the most powerful force in the universe, and He is. So where does all of this take us? Paul tells us in Romans 8.31-34, he says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? The result of God's unconditional election is a believer's unshakable confidence and boldness about life. Because salvation is in God's hands, no one can take you away from God, and no one can bring a charge against any of God's elect. So here now is the question. If your salvation is totally in God's hands, then why should you do anything? Why read your Bible? Why go to church? Why pray? And why become a missionary? Romans chapter 10 provides an answer, and the answer is that you should do all of those things because God is a God of means. God has ordained that the means by which His will is executed is accomplished by people doing things, like Bible study, prayer, and evangelism. Preachers preach because the means by which faith comes is by hearing the Word of God. Hence, Romans 10.17 says, So faith comes from hearing, and hearing... By the word of Christ. Missionaries still go out with boldness, knowing that the means by which people hear the gospel is by people telling them the good news. People are ultimately saved not by the person speaking the gospel, but by the Holy Spirit who uses the gospel as the means to turn hearts. When Romans chapter 12 begins, the text shifts from theological to practical. In other words, Romans chapters 1 to 11 tells us about God and what he has done through Christ. Romans chapter 12 starts and then tells us what all that actually means in real life. If a person has an intelligent comprehension of the first 11 chapters, then a reasonable response is found here. Romans 12 verses 1 to 2 says, Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. When Paul urges us to present our bodies as a sacrifice, he is not calling people to participate in a weird pagan ritual. He is calling us to present ourselves as a living sacrifice. This means we don't die for God, but we live for Him. Living for Him means worship, honor, reverence, and obedience in thought, word, attitude, action, deeds, and behavior. In a world less God, there is no hope for life. In a world with Jesus, there is hope for life, so live like Jesus matters more than anything. Paul then goes on to say that people will always be formed by something, either passively conformed by the world or actively transformed by the Word of God. People don't have to do anything to be molded by the invisible hand of the world, but they do have to actively pursue God's Word so that His words will plant themselves in the soil of a person's heart and bear fruit. 
The Bible is the expression of the mind of God. When Paul says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind, the fuel we use for that transformation is the output of God's mind, the Bible. His mind saturates our mind, we are transformed, and then we desire more and more to do the will of God. Transformed people do not live on individual islands. They live in the midst of societies that are ruled by governments. In Romans 13, Paul continues his prior thoughts on the sovereignty of God and states that all authority is from the Lord. As Romans 13.1 says, authority would not be authority except God allowed it. From this posture, Paul then explains that the Christian in submission to the state reflects their submission to the Lord. There are many spheres of authority in God's order. The state operates in one sphere, the church in another, church leadership within the sphere of the church, and parents in another. Spheres of authority coexist, but are not meant to overlap. So on the one hand, Romans 14 makes it clear that Christians submit to the state, which operates in a world over which God is sovereign. It would be unbiblical, then, to have a state that operates in its own distinct world where God does not exist and the state either derives all authority from itself or infringes upon other spheres by telling them what to do. Romans chapter 14 anticipates that all Christians will not agree about everything. That is not to say that people are free to believe whatever they want in contrast to what the Bible says. That is not to say that people are free to do whatever they want in contrast to what the Bible teaches is sinful. Rather, Christians have a sense of liberty over things that the Bible is silent about. In this neutral zone is where the Bible neither says, Thou shall, nor thou shall not. How this plays out in everyday life is simple that we treat people differently based on how mature they are in their relationship with God. For neutral matters, we restrain ourselves if not restraining would cause someone else to fall. It also means that someone else cannot manufacture rules for everyone else if the Bible is silent about it. That would be legalism. This approach makes perfect logical sense because in the community of believers, there is a host of different levels of maturity. Some can be babes in Christ, and others can be seasoned warriors. Sin is always sin, but the seasoned person holds back so that the babe does not trip. The babes do not restrain the liberty of the veterans to suit themselves. Romans 15 talks about self-denial for the sake of others, and Romans closes in chapter 16, where the apostle expresses his love for the church at Rome and the people in it. That will conclude this episode of The Bible Made Ridiculously Simple. I hope you found the terse synopsis of the whole book and of individual chapters helpful. Next time, we will pick up with the rest of the epistles, starting with 1 Corinthians. Thank you for listening. For more valuable resources, including a bookstore and online Bible study, visit wcsk.org.